The views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when just peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parkus with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Nelaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today, September 20. 2016. Today on New Abolitionist Radio, uh, we have a special guest coming coming in, and you do not want to miss this. Our special guest will be Congressman and Missouri State Representative Brandon Ellington. Uh, he's a Democrat representing District 022. The committees he sits on are the Special Committee on Urban Issues. He's a Vice Chairman, Appropriations, Public Safety and Corrections, Ranking Minority Member, Ways and Means, Ranking Minority Member, Energy and the Environment, Joint Committee on Corrections, Select Committee on Financial Institutions and Taxations, Small Businesses, Small Special Committee on Security Infrastructure of the Capitol Complex. Yes, he's indeed involved in a lot of stuff. He walks around with a gun on his hip, a copy of Sun Tzu's Honor in his pocket, and the courage and willingness to say what needs to be said or let someone who can say it talk. Again, his name is State Representative Brandon Ellington, and God willing, he'll be here tonight. We'll also tell you about our amazing experiences at the Missouri Cure 13th Annual Statewide Human Rights Conference, where uh, Johanan and myself, Tribal Rain, and the congressman, as well as uh, quite a few other members of the community, came together for this human rights conference. We'll discuss the IWW National Prison Slavery Work Strike now in its third week, and our dis- discussions with the IWW leaders in Missouri. History will likely be made tonight on Black Talk Radio Network, so stay tuned and tell someone else to tune in right now. A writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Carl Lawson, who became Missouri's ninth exonerated death row prisoner. Lawson's exoneration was unusual because the error was corrected without the help of volunteers outside the system. Our abolitionist in profile is James McCune Smith, April 18, 1813 to November 17, 1865. He was an American physician, uh, apothecary, abolitionist, and author. He is the first African American to hold a medical degree and graduated at the top of his class at the University of Glasgow, Scotland. He was the first african-american to run a pharmacy in the united states so expect all of that and more tonight on new abolitionist radio if you'd like to share a comment or question 
please call in and join us at one six four one seven one five three six six zero. The access code is five four nine zero three two pound. If you're already on the line, you just press star six and one to queue up from the conference line. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Scotty? What's up, your honey? Uh, I gotta unmute yo, uh, yo, Hanen, Um But I'm doing okay. I'm excited to hear about you guys' experience at the Missouri Cure Conference on Human Rights. I'm definitely excited to hear uh, also from this Missouri uh, representative, uh, who I understand uh, just may be an abolitionist. So I'm, I'm excited, <laughs> man. I'm just ready to sit back and listen to you guys. You know, I could probably answer that question, but I'm the one, I don't put no words in his brother's mouth. I want to let him speak for himself, and I'm uh, looking forward to him coming in as well. We we had a long, several long conversations, and uh, I, I'm really feeling where he's coming from. Uh, one question, Max, before um, Johanan comes in. Uh, one question, yeah. which number should I be looking for him on? Uh, give me a second, and I'll check it out. Okay. Johanan, go ahead, man. Good to hear from you, bro. Peace, peace. Good to be here. Good to be here. Like Max said, we had a pretty, uh, hopefully productive conference over the last weekend. I know it was definitely productive uh, for the people that came, you know, that I invited. I've talked with several folks uh, in the days since then that have all been spreading the word and got that abolitionist fire lit up under them. So um, that was good. It was good to be able to take my seed with me and uh, let him see as he's growing over the years having gone to this conference and gone to some other events over the years you know at 13 now uh, I think his perspective is a little different he's a little a little more mature and uh, definitely takes to heart the news and the things that he sees going on so knowing that we got the answers and we're trying to make the change that was something that was definitely a, a, a proud moment for me just as a parent even though it's a horrible circumstance to be you know having to try to train your children to be uh, be aware of Hey, Scotty, that number you'll be looking for is 816-679 number, okay? Okay, okay, I see it. All right, perfect. Yeah, he said he's going to call in early. I mean, like, you know, he shares the passion we share, Scotty, and he was like, I'm going to call in early and listen because I just want to hear this. I dropped some knowledge and some information on the people of Missouri while I was there. That You know, for us, it's our everyday talk. But for them, they, they just didn't know. It was mind-blowing, like the teacher union circumstances that's going on. Mm-hmm. Even the prison slavery strike was a surprise to quite a few. Thank God that the IWW was there representing and letting people know what's going on. And uh, one of the highlights for me, especially at the end of uh, the discussions, was uh, not only did Missouri Cure, but also IWW both declared themselves as abolitionist organizations. That was awesome. Wow, that is awesome. You know what else is awesome? that prison guards at home in prison in Alabama, shout out to the Free Alabama Movement, have also gone on strike. So um, we're in the third week of this nationwide prison strike against prison slavery. And that was like, I was like, wait a minute, am I reading this right? Did the guards also go on strike at home? So, yeah, that was some... They're coming down on the guards too, Scotty, in Alabama. I just read today from StopTheWarOnDrugs.org about an officer in Alabama prisons who was recently arrested for smuggling contraband into the prisons. It was alleged that he was bringing in drugs and cell phones. So uh, they're already uh, cracking down on those guards who are getting involved up there. Mm. 
Well, shout out, like you said, to the Free Alabama Movement and definitely to uh, Kinetic Justice, um, and to our rest of our brothers and sisters, Free Mississippi Movement, uh, and all of these prisons ac- across the country. I was very proud of the interview that I heard him on uh, Democracy Now! earlier today, just stating the case, and, and just you could just hear in the in what he was saying, you could just hear even in the energy in his voice that you know he understands very clearly what's going on and seeing seeing the spread of the work stoppage and seeing the effect it's having on the systems of bringing the jail itself, bringing the prisons themselves to uh, nearly a standstill and definitely disrupting you know the hierarchy. I think he said the warden himself was uh, around there serving like putting trays in people's people's uh, cells serving the yep. food because it, it was no staff showed up to work. No staff so, showed up. You know, uh, what yeah, so I mean, this to me, man, is is an exciting thing, and I'll put it out there for you guys too. I had a question asked of me about how would we go about looking for um, the effect that the strike is having on the market itself, and like you know, start looking at ways for how we can judge what companies are not able to meet their production quotas, right, what, what right. companies are going to start seeing drops in on the Wall Street numbers. Uh, looking at the uh, quarterly earnings reports coming up here pretty soon, all of this type of information, unless you guys got some more ideas, but just starting to really look and see who shows signs of this crippling their business. I don't know if that's possible. I mean, we know which companies, we don't know them all, but we know some companies like Target, like Walmart, like Microsoft, and many others that utilize prison labor in their business practices. And I'm, you know, I don't want to sound like a pessimistic, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but uh, it it will be hard to say, to point to a, a drop in stock price and say that, oh, this is, you know, related to this, that, or the other. I mean, I'm all for it if we can take an in-depth look at it and somebody can figure out a way where we could tell that. But speaking of Wall Street, not to change the subject, but it's still related, um, Hillary Clinton, now everybody knows how I feel about Hillary Clinton, all right? So I'm not going to belabor how I feel about Hillary Clinton, all right? But I'm glad she's saying what she's saying because when she mentioned closing private prisons last night during those debates, guess whose prison stock took a nosedive, and they are really pissed off about it. The private prison companies, especially yep, CCA. CCA. <laughs> you know, every time I hear about the private prison companies like CCA or Geo Group or G4S or CEC losing money, I just want to give it like a schoolgirl. Because, you know, it, it, for us, that's like this big demon, and that's blood flowing out of its blood veins right there. I mean, we, we've drawn blood, and big blood. At one time on the 18th of August, had not Wall Street stopped trading, Geo Group at least would have went out of business that day. Yeah, they would have. Yeah, they would have. And so I'm not, I haven't had a chance to look at the numbers, but we do know with that first big drop with the Department of Justice announcing that it was not going to renew its contracts with private prisons and they stock dropped as much as 50%, although they were able to regain 20% 20% of that, that was still a, represents a, a 30% negative, you know, in the red. So I'm wondering how big this next drop was. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm hoping some people lost their shirts, man. 
and you know. Well, I got some, I got some info uh, related to that. Um, yesterday, I got an alert that uh, CCA Corrections Corporation of America announced a restructuring plan. So that it says the company expects to cut about 12% of its workforce, um, which would be uh, 50 to 55 full-time positions as a part of its cost reduction plan. Alongside CCA, um, the uh, NASDAQ is anticipating that they're going to take about a $4 million charge off in the in this coming up this Q3 earnings uh, closeout. He said the staff cuts, along with other initiatives, are expected to save about $9 million next year, 2017. In support of the plan, CEO Damon Heinegger will voluntarily forfeit restricted stock that was awarded to him earlier this year, which was valued at about $2 million. And he's also requested that the board award him no equity-based compensation next year. So when you're talking about making them bleed, I mean, they bobbing and weaving, they trying to stay on their feet because they, they got punched in the mouth a few times here. So hey, you know what, effect. though? We got to make sure I, 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 I'm going to make sure I'm on that next earning call because I want to hear some tears. I want to hear some crying about <laughs> uh, the money they losing. <laughs> I'm looking forward gonna, to it. You know, that's one of the things very few people have actually done is sat down and listened to their quarterly earning reports. They're right there available for anybody, activists including just listen. And we've done that a number of times now. And it's, it's both broken my heart and at the same time it's like listening to evil prophets telling you what type of destruction they're about to unleash upon you. And now to see them have to cry as you said Scotty about it, I'm looking forward to that. Yes sir. Well I don't have any more opening comments. I don't want to keep our guests waiting too long so if you want to introduce him again Max and uh, we'll bring him in. Yes, yes, let me do that. Uh, first of all, I'll just say, like I said, I got nothing but love for this, brother. And uh, we, I guess we were connected for a long time, didn't even know it. His mother has been following my work for like 12, 15 years. Shout out to Roach Ellington. And she was just so excited to finally meet Tribal and I when we came out there. And I didn't know that was her son. You know, he was mingling with the crowd. She's like, you got to talk to this guy over there. And everybody's pointing at me. You got to talk to this guy over there. And, and the one woman is like really tugging on him. And finally, he's like, yeah, I'm coming. Don't worry. I'm coming. Everybody, I know. I'm going to talk to him. And then I found out that was his mom. So shout out to Roach indeed, man. Let me tell you who this brother is. He's a Democrat representing District 022. The uh, the committees he's on are like the Special Committee on Urban Issues, uh, Appropriation, Public Safety, and Corrections. Uh, he's the ranking minority member there, Ways and Means, Energy and the Environment, Joint Committee on Corrections, Select Committee, committee on Financial Institutions and Taxation, Small Business, Special Committee on Security, Infrastructure, and the Capital Complex. So this is a brother who knows what he's talking about. He's right there in the middle of the fight on the political front lines with everything that matters. And, you know, after spending some time with him, I found out he's one of the realest cats you ever want to meet, a lot like myself and you, Scotty, and Johanan, and he's in a position to make a difference. Now, we know a lot of people who have been running for office, like congressmen, on an abolitionist platform, relatively speaking, a lot of people. But this is a brother who's already there and says this is where he's standing out. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our listeners and you, Scotty, to uh, Brother Ellington out of Missouri. Missouri. What's good, man? How you doing? Oh, peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, brother, man. You know, you had me so excited. I tell you, you're like a hero of mine right now. <laughs> no, I'm probably going to glory be to God. Indeed, indeed, man. 
You know, uh, I want to ask you a couple of uh, questions, and I'm sure as well my co-hosts would like to speak with you on a few things. Um, when we was at the meeting, there was a few things you said that really I thought was historic. You're the first person, sitting congressman, that I've ever said, heard say that this is, without stuttering or using any kind of other uh, synonyms, said this is slavery and human trafficking all over again. It just shocked me. Because, you know, when I came in, I was like, okay, we're going to have a politician there. He's not going to say it. And you said it. You said the damn thing, man. <laughs> My heart skipped the beat, and I was just so happy because that's groundbreaking. You're, you're standing in a line now where you've opened the door for others to have the courage to say what they feel about this. So tell me, what brought you to that conclusion? Well, uh, well, two things. First, first, I'm not a congressman yet. I'm in the House. Well, so I'm uh, a right, state representative. In the House. Yeah, just to clear that up for folks. Uh, All we're right, state representative. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. State Representative. I know you're good because the title is just a title. But just to clear it up for folks listening. But uh, reality is reality, right? So it is no separate conclusion beyond what the penitentiary is and what it is, right? The results produce what it is. It's not rehabilitation because they're not rehabilitating anybody. And I also study uh, history. So in studying history, I kind of created a theory from jails that used to be in counties to a penitentiary system that came after slavery. And I understand the hustle because I actually grew up in the struggle, right? So it to me, it was nothing but taking one shell, putting it over here. Well, I freed you, but I created a whole penitentiary system, which is new, and I study laws. So in studying laws, you see various states that enacted uh, different restrictions for people that got locked up. And most of these states were states that had uh, influence of ex-slaves or ex-prisoners of war, or whatever you want to call them, uh, uh, influence of them. And the laws followed that. So the penitentiaries is nothing but a modern-day plantation, which is a perfect perfect implementation to uh, sustain the system. The, and the numbers don't add up. And the numbers are simplistic. If if the black population in the majority of states is below 15%, in most states we're talking about 10, 11, 12%, but the uh, uh, numbers in the state penitentiaries is upward to 70 or 80%. Makes no sense, right? It's mathematically impossible. The same if we look at the overlay of the uh, uh, of the population in federal prison, and most of these are drug crimes, and we look at the statutes and the time frames on drug crimes and the, and the dollars that are associated with inmates in the drug arena, we have two systems that's operating off of keeping us uh, 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 keeping a so-called minority class, and I say so-called minority because ethnicity and culture has a different role in this, right? The social condition is the motivating factor, and we just happen to be black and we caught up in this social condition because of certain inefficiencies that we haven't addressed in our own culture, right? But that's how I came to that conclusion, basically. Well, thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Any uh, thing my, my co-host would like to say in regards? Um, yes, I would like to. Welcome here, brother. Oh, go ahead, Johanna. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just saying, just welcoming, welcome you aboard, brother. It's good to have you have you come on. This is Johanna. I wasn't able to uh, to to break through the, the the crowd of of your constituents that that took you as soon as you said uh, this is modern day slavery, man. I saw you in a crowd for about another hour. <laughs> yeah, but no, it's, it's good to finally time. have you on board, though. Definitely. Yeah, no, definitely, man. We're gonna have to hook up one day. Uh, straight up, especially if you're in the city. But it, but it's good to be on. It's good to get in a network with 
more conscious crowds in conscious arenas because I think this is how we start to break that pipeline and particularly when we talk about black folks that pipeline are going straight from a crime infested low income area to a penitentiary right that mentality from going from an elementary school in which you're subjected to certain things that is normal in our community but it's not normal into the so-called majority and I'll give you a perfect example uh, about a year and a half ago we sitting in committee and uh they wanted to change the law on reporters being able to go inside schools and do uh, in-depth reporting because they had a reporter that went inside the school, broke the security protocol, and had it on film. So they made a, a small municipality look bad. My objection was he shouldn't have been able to get past the front door. And I got to asking questions about metal detectors and all this other things that we have in inner-city schools. And the Republicans that were sitting on the panel with me was looking at me like I was crazy. Like Ellington, what are you talking about? You want armed guards walking around the walking around the school? You want metal detectors in the school? I'm like, what are you talking about, man? The first metal detector I seen was when I was in sixth grade, but it was it was abnormal to them, and it was even uh, uh, a horrific suggestion to suggest that we put metal detectors in elementary school. So then I had to start questioning myself uh, more: Why are we subjected to this, and why is it our norm? Well, we only learn from observation and participation. So from the time we, we're juveniles, we're participating in the system of not only oppression, but a system of sub, subjugation. Because if you buck the norm, or if you push back in any, any way, you're labeled, uh, 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 I don't want to use the word thug, I'm just going to use the word thug, I can't think of the word. You're labeled a, a thug or something, right? And this is what we accept as normal, and we don't even pay attention to it. So when we have cats that come out and they talk about we need to break the uh, 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 the way the penitentiary is going, they look at y'all like y'all just want to protect criminals without actually understanding the paradigm in which our culture and our ethnicity is tied into right now and our social contract with America that we allow to, to, to persist. We didn't create it, but we definitely allow it to persist. You remind, what you were talking about uh, reminded me of uh, an article that came out recently from NPR.org that talked about the million dollar blocks that they have in Brooklyn, for example. And they're not million dollar blocks because they have this, you know, high rent uh, property on them, but because of the incarceration rate that's coming from those areas. And I'll just read a quick quote from the story. It says on the title of a, a million-dollar block, it's a term we came up, up with when we were looking not at crime rates, but rather at incarceration rates for places. We met where people were going in and out of prison and jail every year and started to look at the data at a very local level. Then we were tallying up the cost of that imprisonment for each block in Brooklyn, and what we found were these million-dollar blocks, places yeah. for which the state and the city of New York were spending more than $1 million a year to send people to prison and jail each year for, on average, between two and three years at a time. Yeah. Now, the game is real. And this is what I, I'd be trying to get across when I say we need to understand the rules of engagement. Data, data is accurate, right? So if they have data on penitentiary projections, they have data on population projections, they have data on educational projections with uh, dedicated 
to the type of curriculum uh, uh, a child gets, right? So if a child is in such and such curriculum, their educational outcome should be this uh, uh, plus the percentage of how many kids is in it, right? So you have a percentage of how many you know should fail and a percentage of how many should do exceptionally well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So this is the thing that we haven't taken into account, that plus the law, right? So we walk around in, in America and we say America's against it. Well, we got to understand what it what is reality and what is perception. Is America against this or a certain institutions designed to continue a, a system of oppression? Well, if it's if it's the system and not necessarily the uh, uh, faceless agent, and the faceless agent in this case would be America, because nobody that talks about America puts a face on. It. Right, and before I go any further, just to answer dude question, I never considered myself an abolitionist. I always considered myself a revolutionary. So that was the title that I came into the political process with. Uh, and in saying that, that's the examination of the political process and the understanding of the political process that the so-called minority has to get to. Because if, if they have projections of, of economic status and, and how much somebody would be able to make, and you follow that projection without understanding it, your outcome is already guaranteed. Now, in understanding the mathematical formations, you start to create your own equations in there. All right, well, if one and one is two, then I need to add four over here for me to get half of what dude has over here. I need to get a job because if I get a job, then that means that, 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 that I can never own because I'm working for somebody which caps my time. And my time is capped in how much dollars they want to give me, not how valuable I value my time. And it's the same when we talk about laws that contain people in the penitentiary. So is the time frame in which somebody got moralistically equivalent to the crime that they did, or is the time frame unequitable? Un 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 and if it's unequitable, why is it unequitable? And also the uh, dualistic implications of the benefit, 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 benefactor, uh, uh, factor, mess that word up. But anyway, the factor that, that benefits you, who benefits off of all this? If we have inmates and the inmates make the penitentiary a certain amount of dollars, all right, well, the penitentiary isn't the prime. What is the prime? Well, you have a legal system. The legal system is above the penitentiary because before you hit the penitentiary, you're going through that legal system. And what's right above that legal system? It's the enforcement system. So I have an enforcement system that benefits off of an inmate population and the population is vulnerable to be an inmate population. I have a legal system that benefits off of an inmate population and I have a penitentiary system that benefits off of it. Uh, example, both lawyers benefit. It doesn't benefit a defense lawyer or a defense attorney to deconstruct the legal arena because I make money defending people that get caught up in the arena. It makes sense of me getting as smart as I can with the law to be able to find loopholes but not necessarily to deconstruct it. As a prosecutor, my job is to only prosecute the law. Can't really worry about deconstructing it because my job is to prosecute every statute that we have. And the arena that's above all of those will be the political arena, right? Because before you get to the enforcement and before you get to the legal, uh, 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 which has discretion to, to enforce whatever the statute is, and definitely before you get to corrections, you have the laws of containment or the laws of the land. Right, and this is where we don't try to change it. This is where we don't fight, fight, fight for uh, what we see in words of equality. 
And I believe that's one of our biggest problems. And until we do that, I believe we're going to continue to have a prisoner pipeline and we're going to continue to have institutional slavery because that's the system that this was founded on. And if that's the system that it's founded on, you can't get any type of justice out of the exact same system. And you can't change the system unless you understand the rules and operations of that system. And then you can maneuver and alter it and change it because it is flexible. And I believe that's our greatest strength is understanding the laws of the land and then aggressively changing them. You can't beg anybody for something that benefits them, right? So corrections have has no natural desire to change. Neither does the legal system. Neither does anybody that benefits off of that system. So now we're talking about POs, uh, defense attorneys, uh, 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 all the way down the line, because right. citizens. Institutional. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Max, let me let me ask you. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. We are up against our first station identification break, and um, I do have have a question, but I want to take the break first, Max. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back on the other side, we will continue with uh, Representative Ellington on our discussion on slavery and human trafficking here in the United States of America. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back after these messages. <laughs> Since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. We're here talking with Representative Ellington about uh, the prison industrial complex and what modern abolitionists are calling modern day slavery today. Um, let's do this on a round robin thing because I know Scotty, you had something to say, so let's get Scotty in. Um, Scotty, yes, yes. Um, again, welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, glad to have you on. But my question is a follow up to what you just so um, so uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Expertly explained uh, to us how how the system works and how the linchpin is laws and and of course we know laws are passed by politicians and what have you so there's that body politic now with everything that you said we have looked at we have put forth that the linchpin of modern day slavery and human trafficking in the united states is the exception clause in the 13th amendment uh, let me mm-hmm. just state it to those who have not read the 13th Amendment. I'm quoting it from memory, so I might mess it up a little bit. But it says, slavery and involuntary servitude shall be abolished except as punishment for crime whereof a person has been duly convicted. 
Now, that's the gist of the 13th Amendment. So, if they remove, we put forth, and we've been pondering on this, that if we remove the exception clause from the 13th Amendment to where there's no exception for slavery, that that would be what we could use to eliminate private prisons, period, point blank. Not just putting them out of business, but make them illegal to to operate. But what are your thoughts on on what do you think the legal ramifications would be in the country if we got that exception clause removed from the 13th Amendment? No, the exception clause is extremely important. Like, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And the average person doesn't even know it's in there because it keeps slavery legal. You know what I'm saying? Like, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But the penal system still will have to be deconstructed. Uh, it still will have to be deconstructed. Because the way that's written up, that legalizes slavery, but it still has nothing to do with the overt penitentiary system. And the design of the system is extremely systematic, man. And I'm going to be quick, and if I talk, man, just, just say something so y'all can jump in. Uh, a couple of bills that I got that I put out there. Uh, one would make it uh, uh, a mandate that anybody that's locked up in Missouri is certified in bond. Something simple, right? Somebody gets locked up, you work, you certify them in whatever they do, or you bond them in what they do. Uh, problem with this bill. Republican came to me, wasn't trying to be funny or racist or none of that. He was just being upfront. He was like, Ellington, I cannot vote for this bill. I was like, why? He was like, because you're not thinking. You're only thinking about how it's going to affect your people, right? You're not thinking about how it's going to affect my people. I cannot go back to my district and tell them I voted on something that's going to take jobs away. Boom. Set off uh, uh, dynamite in my head, right? Because he has five penitentiaries in his area. And the way the allocations work is it doesn't matter where you send them back to, where they're sitting at when we do that census or whenever whenever we do certain tracks, that's where the dollar goes. And then we send them back systematically to impoverished areas. Uh, uh, and it's, it's real sad and real simple. If you ask the average black person where they're from, they're going to say the south side, the east side, right, or the north side. The average Mexican is going to be from northeast or the west side. I don't care what state you're in. And I did this test in, in various states when I moved around in various cities. It's always the same, right? So this system is designed for containment. But the laws are also designed for uh, for radical changes, and it can be done radically. But we don't change the laws. Like, I agree with you with the 13th. It has to go, right? No ifs, ands, or buts. But the design of the system is containment. Even the uh, time frames of the law, it makes no sense that I can go outside and commit murder, and I can get away with murder in various degrees and do less time than somebody that has a... a uh, a substance on, right? What well, has different effects? Obviously, one kills somebody; the other one gets somebody hooked on a chemical dependence that they chose to get to. But we don't. We have to deconstruct the law. Like I agree with you 100% on the 13th. No ifs, ands, or buts. But my point was when I filed that bill, and I filed it every year since I've been in office, and dude looked me in my eye and said he couldn't vote for it because it's going to take jobs away from his community. It solidified the belief that the system is designed for our oppression, right? Now, we fit into that category because of our social disconnect and our lack of, uh, of, a, of a social unifier, right? One common denominator. And history shows us that each time 
we have a collective uh, organized effort for that that's systematically broken up. And I'll give you an example with words. Uh, nowadays, if you ask black folks, what are they, you're going to get, I'm black, I'm African-American, I'm Nubian, and I'm African, I'm African, you know what I'm saying, or, or what have you. If you go back like 30, 40 years, we had a, a signifier when they started saying black, because they started unifying black with not only black in America, but black in the Caribbean, black in the uh, East, et cetera. They broke that. No, you're African-Americans, Afro-Americans now, excuse me, right? They're Cubans. Blase, blase, because words have an effect because observation and participation, again, is how we learn. And the participation right. that we're doing right here underneath this law is for oppression. I mean, okay. it's simple. When you look at the numbers and the crimes that black folks, Latinos, and poor white folks get locked up the most for, you right. see that it's not the same type of crimes that white folks get locked up for, which right. has a more... Uh, more holistic impact. Right. I have a follow-up. And follow- I go through the... No, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just got a quick follow-up question, and this one is uh, related to the first question about the 13th, and I got your answer. Yes, the 13th is important, but it's not a magic bullet that's going to end uh, slavery in this country, but it is important. And I don't know if you know, but Venezuela... Um, during a, I forget the name of the specific conference, but the United States was participating. It might have been a UN action, but it was the, it was the U, UN peer review, I believe is what it was called. And Venezuela had tabled a motion telling the United States to get rid of the 13th Amendment because y'all using it to practice slavery. So a lot, they, yeah. a lot of people don't know that, but Venezuela actually put that uh, to the United States. Now, my second question is, okay, for example, many other things that that the um, the victims of prison slavery um, are are right now, you know, they're doing their prison strike. It's in the third week. And they're saying that, you know, they should be paid for their work. Now, this is what I'm saying here in North Carolina. Our Constitution says that slavery uh, shall be abolished forever. Period. They don't have no exception clause. Now, they try to get tricky with it, and they put the exception clause in the involuntary servitude. They said involuntary servitude shall be abolished except as punishment for crime. So, uh, you know, as a lawmaker, I'm asking, the reason I'm asking you this question is, I'm looking at that, and I'm saying, okay, they're saying the second part says about the involuntary servitude except for punishment for crime means that they can make you work. There's nothing voluntary about working. We can make you work. But if they, in fact, in North Carolina Constitution said slavery is abolished, period, they're making a distinction there. And so I feel like that could be used perhaps by by you know the law legal uh, law community or the abolitionist community in North Carolina to make them start paying these prisoners at least the minimum wage. I would like to see them pay whatever the going market rate is for that job. And and you know um, just a personal note, my little brother was uh, enslaved on a North Carolina prison plantation for 10 years for a crime he didn't commit that they presented no evidence for, but that's beside the point, and they made him work on 
poultry farms, processing turkeys and stuff like that, and then wasn't paying them. So, yes. I, so yes. what? What are your thoughts on that nah. about the North Carolina Constitution? Now nah, you hit it. You hit it on the head on both instances, right? So that's what getting rid of it would do. It would implement a, a payment system of some sort, right? But the more important thing is to get that certification. Because in America, skills are non-transferable without certain paperwork that they approve, right? So you can have the skills to to do surgery, but if you ain't went to school and got the indoctrination from the school and a letter from the school, which doesn't necessarily transfer to skills, you can't do it. Like I use myself as an example. I haven't went to law school yet. So I get in debates all day with lawyers. And a lot of times they come back and say, I won on the law. But I can't practice law, and they don't look at me the same because they have a law degree. You know what I'm saying? So it'd be like, yeah, you got me on that one. But when I was in school, yeah, I know what that means in school. Uh, but that's a, <laughs> but but that's what that would do. It would implement pay, but you want to implement certification. So if they're locking up anybody and they're having you work, it should be some type of state certification. Like if I cut 2,500 hours of hair. In Missouri, you have to certify me as a barber, and it's the same whatever I'm doing. That uh, gets rid of the uh, uh, the dependency on having to get a job when I get out, because I don't need to get a job with anything. I'm certified in whatever I was doing, which means I can start my own company, my own business, etc. Which goes back into that payment that you were talking about by getting rid of the 13, because they would have to implement some type of pay, because you can't have forced slavery, forced work, free labor. And right now, that's what they're doing. They're having free labor. Right now, that is exactly what they're doing. Uh, I want to give you, Hunter, a chance to, to maybe ask a question or contribute here as well, and then I want to bring it back uh, again, and I have something that I want to share with you. So, Johanna? Yeah, uh, when you uh, started and before the break and, and uh, going back also to Scotty's question, uh, bro, you were talking about um, really just the, the law being the thing that's got us tied to this, and you know, definitely I agree, and Scotty pointed it out, and so I think we're all on the same page with that as well. And even with uh, removing the exception from the Thirteenth Amendment, um, well, the way we look at it is is that we found an unbroken line from the creation of the first state penitentiaries in the country itself. Um, and the the labor that was used during you know those uh, 1700s 1800s you know from state to state all into the south that prison labor that was used even through the civil war itself to provide you know the military uniforms and the horse saddles and the horse tack everything they used for their weapons of war what have you that was produced by prison slaves even in those years so we've we've made that connection and feel like the exception is there to create a financial incentive to hyper-police and to terrorize particular communities that are underrepresented or not represented at all. So that brings me to my question with you. Um, you know, some of the research was trying to do just to, to kind of see what we can do to help you and get on the same page and give people good ideas on what they can do to turn these things around on a local level um, because of course it's the voting season Everybody would talk about vote, vote, vote But we need to have our votes attached to a demand We need to have candidates that have been 
you know, brought from the community so we know that our demands can be met by these people that care about us and that we also need to be able to support them. With that said, tell me what you deal with as far as being able to work with, because, like, one of the things I was looking at was, say, like, the corrections uh, subcommittee um, in the Missouri House of Representatives, for example, and seeing three of the top names on that list as the chair, vice chair, and ranking minority member, you know, these individuals, when I look at their donor information pages versus, say, your donor information page, you know, this speaks directly to what I tell people, you know, one-on-one -on -one all the time. Look, we have to raise up our own candidates, and then we got to be prepared to support them. So yeah. when you got people that you're fighting with toe-to-toe -to -toe at your job looking out for your constituents, and these people have single donors that are giving fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars at a time. When these people have ten, fifteen pages of people that are giving, you know, five thousand, one thousand, two thousand, four thousand, just on and on and on. And then I see that a lot of the donors that are given to you are people that are are uh, organizations that maybe you're sharing. You're getting five hundred and and everybody else is getting five hundred. You're getting a couple mm -hmm. thousand, but there's several other people getting a couple thousand. So just give us an idea of first of all it, are we on the right track with that? We're telling people we've got to raise up our own candidates and then we've got to be prepared to support them, with, like with political action committees, with donations to help them not only get elected but keep them in office so they can change the laws for our good. But is that realistic to be able to fight these kind of big big dollars, this, these chairmen and vice chairs and so forth? Man, I, yeah. Uh, you about to have me go in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah no, nah, it's real. Uh, I got to throw a plug out there. I started a political action committee last year. It's called We the People. Uh, uh, check us out. We in Kansas City. We the People at uh, com. The reason I started is because we have to own our own political vehicles, right? So when we talk about Democrats, Republicans, or pre-processed politicians in front of us, we have to question who do they represent, Right. So if you don't have the same ideology as me or you haven't went through the same struggle that I went through and you're not talking my language, you cannot represent me, man, because you're going to view me differently. You're going to – you're not from the same culture, right? Identity politics is one of the worst things that the so-called minority has gotten comfortable doing. Identity politics and block voting, terrible. Uh, uh, block voting unconscious, excuse me, terrible. So with identity politics, we look at a black candidate as a black folk, and we go, I'm voting for that dude, man. I'm voting for him. He's black. But we don't listen to what he's saying or where he actually came from or what he's talking about doing or what he's not saying. And what he's not saying is more important than what he's doing, actually, right? Because you're not actually speaking out on my concerns. You're not actually voicing the things that would actually alleviate stress in my situation then you're doing nothing but placating me, which means you're a placeholder. And you didn't come from my culture, right? We may look the same, but you didn't come from my culture. But I consider you my representative or my city councilman or my mayor or, or whatever other title that we want to put on this individual, right? Well, that's no different than the overseer since y'all talking about slavery. That's no different than the overseer on the plantation, right? I didn't elect you to be my overseer, <laughs> but he put you here. So I'm going to listen to what you say because you don't hit as hard as he do, but when you hit, he comes. So I'm going to go ahead and, and listen to you, man, and, and what you tell me I get is what we believe we deserve. 
Well, that's unintelligent, right? Intelligence is understanding the body political. And the body political is who gets what. Not necessarily party dominance, not necessarily pre-positioned packaged candidates. This is why when we look at other communities, we see they have a whole plethora of political organizations, right? We got people putting memes out for Jill Green. Now, she doesn't really have a chance of winning in the two-party system, but they rocking with her, right? Because they believe in the process so much where they like, we're going to create our own platform, and we get enough people to pay attention, we're going to crack through that ceiling. It's the same when it comes to uh, our political representation. Uh, and I'm speaking uh, 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 pointingly to the black community right now. In the black community, more more than not, They've had misrepresentation by folks that look like them. Now, you asked me a question of which I could do to help me. I need help getting information out. And I need help getting bills uh, solidified and processed and pushed out. Because the more we have universal uh, 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 concentration and agreement on something, the quicker that becomes reality, right? So the reason I kept saying the certification would do it is that's what we actually want them to get. If they're using a penitentiary right now to warehouse black folks from anywhere from five to 10 to 15 year blocks, well, all right, that's the same equivalent of me going to a major university. So you're going to go ahead and give me the certification for the times that I can't work out here and have work experience where I can go ahead and acquire every technical degree because that's what it takes to actually be on, right? It doesn't take the skills, it takes the degree. I can require every technical degree I need so when I step out this door, I can do whatever I want to do in the field that I choose to do because I have the degrees because you took my time. And while you took my time, I gained, I gained my leverage, right? But they don't want to do that because then that creates a imbalance in the system. Like dude was talking about the uh, police and some other things. Yes, everything is designed uh, off of an economic imbalance. This is what our uh, economic system is based on, right? It's not based on socialism. It's not based on uh, everybody has one and, and one is all. No, it's based on equality. This is what the open market and capitalism and all this good stuff means. So it has to be a subclass. And that subclass is the ones that are unconscious and unorganized. Because organization is what dictates uh, liberation, not the illusion of freedom. Right, we live in a community in which we're controlled not just by the penitentiary, because again, corrections is the pitfall. And I want to keep saying that because I want us to start focusing on every layer, because if corrections is the pitfall, I need to figure out what is before I even fall. And if the laws is before I even fall, and this is what is setting me up for this pitfall, along with the educational system, which is controlled by the law and the allocation of my funds, right? Then my whole social condition collectively is controlled by my lack thereof control of my political forces around me. And that only comes from electing folks that is from your culture, not necessarily that looks like you. And I say that because I was blessed to be the chair of the Black Caucus this year, but not because I'm black, right? That was actually a, a negative attribute. Because uh, some folks were saying he's too ghetto, and I'm not. I'm good, 100% different than ghetto. Uh, but that's what the 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 rebuttal was. He's gonna be too aggressive. And even when I first got in the house, one of the first bills, and this is all for research for people to look up, 
When I first got in the house, I filed a video and audio equipment bill. I want to say I filed in like 2012, right? Before Mike Brown got killed, before we started seeing uh, black bodies in the streets, damn near, I mean, almost every day, right? I filed this because of observation that I had growing up. And you would notice that it's a lot of people that aren't co-signers on that bill. And these people told me that I was doing too much. You want to put police, uh, cameras on police officers. And you will see the same people after Mike Brown got killed have all type of legislation. Now you need to question the motivation behind folks that say they represent you. Because if you really represent me, you're not just going to do something when the media is paying attention. And I say that to go back to the heart of your question. We have no political action because we haven't taken the time to groom our own political candidates. And that only comes from believing in the value of the root. And that comes back to our culture, some of the culturalistic and inefficiencies that I was talking about. We have to start grooming and believing in that root. Because until we do that, we can't have a unified force or a unified nation or unified anything. Because I don't even believe that you're uh, uh, competent enough. And a lot of this comes from the imagery that we get, uh, which again, is political, right? It's all controlled by certain laws and regulations that allow certain things in and they definitely block certain things out. And and I say this with our schools. And again, jump in any time. I got a bill yeah, uh, that I filed. And and well let me let me get this bill out real quick. I filed yes, and it was the worst bill that I seen go down. I lost a <laughs> hundred and eighteen uh to forty something, hundred and thirteen to like thirty something, and a hundred and something to fifteen, right? The bill would mandate world history. Now, the only objection to mandating world history was that I was going to irritate students. I was going to make it too complicated for kids to graduate. We already learned Roman history. Now, what is the problem with teaching world history? Unless we're talking about breaking a systematic layer of observational control, and that's through our educational region. Indoctrination is what you're talking about. Indoctrination into the racist system. And that just, they want, they don't want, they want, in my opinion, educators here in the United States, I shouldn't even call them educators, but indoctrinators. Um, but they, they want these children here in the United States to believe in white supremacy and studying world history and seeing all these other great civilizations and seeing that the earth doesn't revolve around the United States. Um, that's, in my opinion, that is part of the opposition of what you're talking about. Yes. But whose fault is that? Who well, is it? It's our, it's the like, it's the people who live in whatever district. It's their fault. It's the parents' what, 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 what fault. It's it, the community. It. And fault. I'm asking you this for the for the sake of conversation. Dig it. If they have laws that shows me how I can create a school, and we know we've been talking about since Brown versus the Board of Education that they don't teach at black kids or so called minority children, Latinos, anybody else that's over here. A, a, a history that has any type of significance to any so-called minority. But we keep going through that same door. We keep going through that same system. When they have one and one is two, all I have to do is do this, and I create my own school, right? And again, this goes back to the uh, prison pipeline, the third and fourth grade to the penitentiary. Well, we've been talking about this. I'm, I'm 35, 34, 35. 
I've been hearing this conversation since the 80s, since I was a little kid when I had Darren Scopes. Well, this is, how is it 30 years later we're still talking about the same thing? Well, why don't we create our own schools? We don't have to worry about a prison and pipeline system. The same when we talk about uh, police corruption and police departments. We can create our own departments. All of this is legal, right? Uh, in most of the states where you heard about these black folks getting killed, the excuse was he had a gun. But these are mostly open carry. You, at the beginning, you said, I had my gun on my hip. Yes, Missouri's an open carry state. The states that most of these black folks have been killed in is what? Open carry state. So you can't use the excuse that he had a gun on him or I seen a gun. Yes, that's the law of the state, unless you're saying the law is not applicable to black folks or so-called minority folks. No, go ahead, my bad. No, I'm agreeing with you, but I would like to, to take it back. Uh, you know, I've been sitting and listening to this, what you've been saying here throughout the conversation and uh, the questions that my comrades have asked, and I would just like to add some to it. You mentioned that it requires, you know, we, we need to build a platform of these ideologies uh, with, within the lawmakers, and we're doing that. I have been doing that for quite some time now. We've had uh, several, right now we have Dimitri Cherney in Charleston, South Carolina, running for congressman, and he's also an abolitionist, running an abolitionist yes. platform. We've had uh, Brother Omoja Ajabu out of Indiana ran for Congress on an abolitionist platform to get the exception clause out of the Constitution of Indiana over there. The same thing with Muhadeen Dabaha, who was running for Senate on an abolitionist platform, and Magdalene Howard out in Tennessee. So we're, we're building this, this platform where we want the main thing we want is freedom. We want freedom for yeah. the people who are incarcerated and freedom from oppression for the people who have yet to be incarcerated. You know, you mentioned earlier that you started by calling yourself a revolutionary. I was in the same boat, brother. I've been, you know, like you, I've been out in, in the trenches for a long time, and that's where I was coming from. But I started trying to uh, understand better what it was I was trying to revolution from. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? What, what I was going to re-evolve from. And it always came down to the freedom for my people. And then I started examining, asking new questions like, why is this like this? What is the root causes of all of this that's going on? And it dawned on me that the abolitionists prior to us here now were right, particularly when Angela Davis started breaking it down for me and said we need a new uh, abolitionist movement, a 21st abolitionist movement. So all of that came into play and made me realize that the best place to attack this was the closest to winning we've ever had, and that was the abolitionist party. In 1865, had we not been betrayed by that exception clause, we would have had our freedom. So that's how I became an abolitionist and started moving towards abolition as the weapon to use to get that freedom for our people. Because if you're not doing it for freedom and justice, reparations and reconciliation and truth and what are you doing it for so that was that was where I came from and how I became to came to be an abolitionist now as far as the 13th amendment is concerned that was the linchpin as Scotty said and we've been working on that for a long time as you know on October 7th the 13th will be released on Netflix worldwide and also premiered at the New York Film Festival it's the first of its kind a documentary to ever be premiered like that at the New York Film Festival by Ava DuVernay. So on October 7th, that'll be released, and it traces the history of the 13th Amendment all the way from the uh, when it was first placed into the Constitution to today's modern-day slavery and human trafficking. Very, very, a, a very informative and poignant film, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Other experts have come out right here on this show as well as in other places, particularly 
constitutional lawyers who uh, their main thing is the Constitution. For instance, Nakima Levy-Pounds, the president of the NAACP out of Minneapolis, who calls herself the abolitionist attorney, uh, is also part of this platform. And she she feels the same way, that this 13th Amendment is the thing that we need to focus on because it was spread from there. It's not the end-all, be-all, but from there you have to start questioning everything. You have to start looking at all the filaments. This is indeed institutional, affecting every aspect of our lives, as you so clearly explained. And there's people who have their hands in that pot, taking money out from the moment that they determine in preschool whether or not you're going to end up in prison and how many they need to build to the time that you are buried on a prison graveyard. Someone is collecting money on those, uh, predictive money on those bodies. So it is indeed a web of impression, of oppression. You and I talked personally about certain incidents and situations that you were not aware of from what you explained to me. One, yeah. the investments that are going on, for instance, like with the teachers union having $90 million invested in Corrections Corporation of America and the GEO Group, and also uh, the unions. And I don't know if you were familiar prior to the Missouri Cures event of the National Work Strike, but also the National Work Strike. And I think one thing that really set you off was the cost of incarceration for children. Like in New York was $353,000 a year. In Missouri, it's $90,000 a year with these private facilities. And then finally, the Justice is Not the Sale Act, which is a bill that's in Congress right now, which would ban private prisons from America. So saying all of that, for me, is to ask a simple question. It's the same one I asked at the Missouri Church Conference. Do you consider yourself at this point an abolitionist in the terms of you want to end slavery and we need to take that 13th Amendment out of the federal as well as state constitutions and start freeing people who have no business being in prison to begin with? Yeah, in those terms, yes. Indeed, indeed. I'm I'm just trying to get it from you because you know we're going to use it as a soundbite somewhere along the line. (laughs) So so definitely, I just want to make sure I got that from you, brother. Nah, you good. Nah, you good. Because oh. one thing about me, I always try to speak honestly, and I try to walk both lines, right? So as a representative, I have a job to do, but as a conscious black man, I also have a job to do, which I try to interwine, because folks have to wake up, and it's on both sides of the line. Both sides have to wake up. This is this is absolutely true. Um, I provided... Well, it looks like we're running into our next break time. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to uh, continue our conversation, and then we'll go into our other segments. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back after this. Black Talk Radio, your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, I mentioned a couple of constitutional lawyers, uh, Nakim Levy-Pounds, uh, the abolitionist attorney, and also Angela Chan, who published an incredible article on Huffington Post called America Never Abolished Slavery, which was recently followed up by Sean King on the same thing. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, and as both Scotty and Johanna have pointed out, and you have agreed with, this seems to be the linchpin. If we focus on this, you can't help but see the other things and start attacking all angles, as we say, 
death by a thousand cuts. Um, I would like to open up the phone lines if anybody has called in and they'd like to ask a question of Representative Ellington or our, ourselves, feel free. Right now will be a good time. Um, otherwise, I'll pass it over to Scotty. I'm sure he has a few things to say as well. Oh, yeah. The telephone number is 641-715-3660. The participant code is 549-032-POUND. For those on the line or once you dial in, if you want to enter the caller's queue, just hit star 61. Um, Max, I really can't think of any more questions. I'm just very, very pleased, you know, to to talk talk with a person who understands the problem you know and and i wouldn't even give you brother i wouldn't even give you the label of a politician because <laughs> you know that that can mean a bad word but i'm just so glad that people in missouri have a representative such as yourself That's right. indeed i feel the same way man um i just want to continue on where we started out as slavery and human trafficking we need to bring that to the attention of the American public. Public opinion is very important, and it changes the narrative. When you start looking at this as a crime against humanity, something that cannot be reformed by definition, then abolition becomes an option that is available to you. But if you continue to look at this as something that is a mistake made over time, judgments, uh, errors in judgment, or uh, some racism involved in lawmakers' decisions, then of course you can think, think that it can be reformed. But you can't reform crimes. You can't reform uh, rape or murder. You certainly can't reform terrorism, and you can't reform slavery. Are, are you in agreement with me on that, Representative Ellington? Yeah, no, I am. Uh, I'm going to say a couple of things. I'm going to have to get off here in a minute, but yes, sir. Take, what you just, take what you just said, though. Uh, people only identify with what they believe is normal, right? So the problem that I believe that we have right now, in particular when we're talking about deconstructing the penitentiary system, abolishing the 13th Amendment, et cetera, corrections is overtly seen as colored, black and brown, right? Mm -hmm. The same if we look at the context of the folks that have been murdered. The overt look is they look like they may have been a criminal. He's a bad dude, right? So the public sentiment outcry isn't there. If those folks that have been murdered in the streets was a different color because they had a gun on them, it would be all type of issues. NRA would be out, right? It'd be different politicians speaking out. The laws of this state is such and such. The same when we talk about corrections, alleviation. And I say this coming from the standpoint of actually sitting on the committee. Uh, uh, in sitting in that committee, you see what folks believe is normal and what is not, right? So I've been blessed to actually come from not only the city, because it throws people off. They'd be like, you represent this area? Yeah, I grew up in this area, which is actually unique that I didn't know was unique until I got elected. Like, damn, there ain't none of y'all from your area, huh? Yeah, I actually grew up in these streets, in these blocks, et cetera. Uh, went to these schools. So my uh, association and my dedication is a little bit different. And then sitting in those committees, when I speak out on, on people that go to the penitentiary, I'm speaking out on people that I grew up with. When I speak out on issues that folks have when they come out of the penitentiary, I live off 40th and Prospect. I'm speaking on people that I see every day, right? So when most of the my uh, uh, colleagues, when they see something, they don't see it. 
like I gave a, a, a colleague example last uh, committee meeting. His county where he lives in, his district, is 95.5% white. 95.5%. You can't blink and see anything different, right? You, you the, 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 the standards are going to be totally different than the area that is uh, a mixed population, right? Like a city, like a, a so-called urban area. So the understanding of criminality, the understanding of the legal system, the understanding of being smart on crime and not super tough on crime. Uh, example, they wanted to do a hard 50 a couple years ago for juvenile. Well, hard 50 ain't going to stop, stop anybody from killing anybody because they're already not worried about the murder charge, right? So it's better to be smart on crime, but that comes from who we put in these positions. And putting people in these positions comes from our understanding of it. And I agree with you 100%. Corrections, the 13th Amendment, is extremely important. Extremely important. But the face of it right now, the face of it, even when you have uh, meetings like the Cure, which was a perfect example, the Cure uh, membership in there wasn't all so-called minority at all. It probably was more so non-so-called minorities than so-called minorities in there. But right. the perception, the perception of the criminals, right? If we just say the word criminal, somebody robbed a store, first thing most people are going to think of is somebody black, which is not even funny, right? <laughs> but that's the first thing we're going to think of. I've seen a pimp walking down the street. You don't think of a white dude. First thing you're going to think of is somebody black uh, in more cases than not. So this is the social constraint that I'm talking about that we have to work on simultaneously because the 13th Amendment most folks don't trip off of because they don't see themselves being slaves at all it's not even a thought, you're tripping you just don't want to work everybody needs to work because when you're in there you need to serve your time and you need to uh, pay your punishment I actually heard that in one of the bills that I was presenting you know what I'm you want to make it like a college well they need to work to pay back the time that they that they owe owe our society for paying them for being in the penitentiary, taking care of their food and their shelter. So this is a mentality and the and the perception of a people that is in this penitentiary, as opposed to that could be my brother that's locked up in there. And I don't want my brother to have to work and, and do turkeys for free. <laughs> See what what you you're talking that? about, um <laughs> What you're talking about is something that I have mentioned before. Um, in counter-racism uh, circles, there's um, an author by the name of Neely Fuller Jr., and he talks about how the system will showcase black people like, you know, a congressman or president or whatnot. And a point of showcasing that person is to make you think that racism is over. Or they showcase a whole bunch of black celebrities like a Oprah or 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 you know name a black person that's known to have some money, and the reason they do that is to make you think that oh it, it, these people made it. Why you can't make now, it? Must be something wrong with you. Something you ain't now, doing. So based what, on what you're talking about, the problem the problem is the perception. The perception is created by the media, and so what I started. Well, I actually got some covert things that I'm doing that I can't say because I don't want people to know that I'm the one behind it. But what? But I have said that we need to start racially showcasing 
white victims. Like there's a story tonight of a white slave in a prison plant on a prison plantation who was uh, electrocuted to death by guards. So again, am I? Are we on the same page and seeing the same problem with the perception? And perhaps be yeah. that we need to showcase the white victims, including those getting shot down in the streets. With with give and no, not just the white victims, right? Uh, not just them, but I'm saying you, we what, should what, showcase what, them. Well, no, no, we on the same we on the same path. I just want to take you back a step back when you were talking about perception of people in position. What if we replace the perception with the actual oper- operation, right? So in college, I studied criminal theory and behavior. In criminal theory and behavior, they had a, a, a layout of street attributes, right, which was uh, uh, equatable to normal society, right? So the streets was considered a subculture when I studied criminal theory. You had the dominant culture and you had subculture, which blew my mind. So I'm like, all right, so, you, so everything that cats do in the streets is actually part of the system over here. Right, we think that it's separate because in your mind you think that you're breaking the law, but you're not because they have a law for that. Which means that law that you're breaking is part of the system. So even you breaking that law is systematic, right? Because it's all tied into one. And it's the same when we talk about uh, positioning. I just want to take you back because we're on the same page. I just want to take you back a minute to position. So when I got elected, uh, one of the first things a cat came to me, a black cat came to me, he was like, "Hey, man." I would pay for you to get that gold tooth taken out your mouth. And I was like, straight up, you're going to pay to get my tooth taken out. Like, yeah, yeah, you can't have that no more. And, and, and you can't be where you used to be. All right, what do you mean? You can't hang around the people that you grew up with. Uh, straight up. And I heard that. Well, that's a problem. I'm not, I can't, now I know I can't hang with the cats that I grew up with for various reasons, et cetera, but I'm still in the exact same area. Right, I'm still sociable with the exact same folks because you can't move me out of my area. The same when uh, uh, one of the first events that I went to as a representative, I go into the event, I got my tank top on and some shorts. Dude comes up to me, a black elected official. Hey, can't go in there like that. Why not? You know what I'm saying? Like you, you gotta be in uniform, man. You got these tattoos hanging out, blah blah blah. I go in there and I'm making friends, talking, and we joking with folks, right? That don't necessarily look like me. I get respect from Republicans and definitely folks that are from a different ethnicity because they all say the same thing. you authentic to your culture. Yes. So it doesn't matter about the culturalistic differences if we can uh, uh, talk about empirical facts all day. Don't matter about opinion. What's real? What's one and one is two. Uh, and that goes back to the system, replacing certain folks that is in that system that is not going to operate inside that system. Because it is a certain thing as tradition and decorum. It's certain things as things that you're not supposed to say and things that you're not supposed to do. And we don't even realize it. The average person, when they think about a politician, you think about what? A picket fence, a wife, a kid, a dog, and a pink shirt somewhere in that picture, right? I don't know why the pink shirt, but it's going to be somewhere in that picture. Uh, this is what we think about. But that doesn't represent the average person's lifestyle. But this is what we buy into. This is what it's supposed to look like. This is what it's supposed to sound like. Well, if this is what it's supposed to sound like and you're not of that, then that means you're being controlled by something that is not germane to yourself. And the perception, yes, it is controlled by the media, 
But all of this is allowed allowed by us. We allow them to show folks that look like us on TV that don't act like nothing like us, right? We watch the TV, man. This is boofy, dogs. We don't even laugh at it. But we allow this to continue. No other culture does that. Any other culture, if you misrepresent them in their own culture, they shut that show down. But we're we're, we're acceptable. And then we then we concrete and solidify shows, and we can't deny the social uh, uh, negative impact back, and we want to. So, like, we will support an empire which has every negative in, imagery of a black family that you could think of. You got a dysfunctional mother. You got an abusive father. You got a drug addiction. You got everything in that one family, right? And we watch it. Empire. And then we wonder why they look at us like we sub-creatures or we sub-human. Because we allow people to go to college and then to tell our kids to sell dope on radio. And we know you went to college. You know Lil Wayne went to college. You know Kanye West went to college. You know all these cats have a different background than what we let put out. And we don't check it. We allow folks to make money off of us and we condemn them in the inner city. Well, I don't like the Iranians. I don't like the Chinese. But you don't say anything about the black cat that's making all that money showing you the money that they making off of the conditions that you live in. Because when they come back and do their video shoot, I'm back in the hood, but I ain't leaving none of this bread here. And we glorify that. That's self-hatred. Well, and again, a, a lot large, of this has to be... No, I'm sorry. There's a large number of people who are protesting against that. Right here in Black Talk Radio Network, they've had programs dedicated to nothing but that. And Scotty himself yeah. has what he calls message music, which is an alternative. And me, the same thing for the past 20 years, I've been providing alternative media for people who do, don't want to uh, be a part of that. Yeah, Brother Kwabana will, uh, Brother Kwabana Rasuli, just outside of Chicago, he'll be on Black Talk Radio News tomorrow. He comes on every other week. He works with Clear the Airways Project, and they have been targeting these corporations and businesses that are sponsoring the murder music on the terrestrial radio stations in black communities and what have you. So, yeah, yeah, that is something that a number of us are are aware of, and we are targeting it. I tell you, again, it's just so much. It's just, it, it's no simple thing that we are facing, but there's a lot, and, and so there is room for everybody to get in where they fit in but uh, uh, I know I know that your time is short and we appreciate you being here today uh, spending time with us I want to give you the opportunity to say anything you want to say to our listening audience we reach a number of countries and thousands of people uh, every week with our broadcast so if there's anything you want to give out to them please uh, I want to give you a chance to take, do that for them now no I just want to tap into what uh, my brother just said it's so big and so complex yet sim- simplistic at the most if everybody just picks their lane and do their piece right mm-hmm. so mine is the law because I understand the law yours is going after the 13th amendment which has to be abolished right somebody else's may be science reading etc this is what we need to sort of focus on and deconstructing uh, simultaneously because and I'll say this just touching back into what Dude said how many young cats already know they're going to jail right when I was young 
even to this day, it's a thought. Not because I believe I'm going to go do something illegal, I'm going to go rob a store or anything like that. It's just always there. Like, yeah, one day I have to get locked up. How many black cats already think that, right? And a lot of this is kind of created in our music and the imagery because the imagery teaches us you're going to get locked up. You're going to go to jail. So it's normal to us, which is uh, counterproductive to the movement, right? Because it's counterproductive because I believe I'm supposed to go through this some some way, some shape, some form, as opposed to understanding the whole the whole paradigm of war. And I say right. war because it is certain fractions that benefit off of other people's situations. But that's warfare. You can say it's economic warfare. You can say it's war on drugs. You can say it's war on so-called minorities. You can call it whatever you want to. Uh, but warfare is warfare. And, and benefits is benefits. And if I can leave folks with anything, man, be conscious, pay attention, and definitely get involved in politics. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, everything is controlled by the political structure, right? And there's only two forms of government, federal and state. Everything else is jurisdictional. So if you change the laws of jurisdiction and all that good stuff at the state, or the laws of regulation or, 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 or interactions between entities, law enforcement, whatnot, then every county, every jurisdiction in that state has to follow it. And the same federally. Right? And be smart. Because just because a law is legal doesn't mean that it's legit, because slavery was legal. Right? So if history shows us that we have to be active in our political uh, understanding and our political maneuvering and in our political uh, powers, then we have to be as extremely active in politics and not just voting for folks, because that's dumb. It's dumb to vote for folks that you don't have any in invested interest in. Nobody does that, except for us. Nobody does that. <clears throat> well, brother, I'm looking forward to you and I having some conversations off the record. I provided you with a great deal of the information that you asked me about. I look to you like okay. a brother like now, you know what I mean? Like, we're family. I done broke bread with you, your wife, your mother, and your, your kids, you know what I'm saying? So I'm feeling like I'm part of the family now, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I plan on coming back on the 13th and 14th as well. Maybe we can meet again and sit down and talk. I uh, welcome you into this movement that we're trying to get accomplished, and I appreciate your support, and hopefully uh, we can come together and get some things accomplished. All right. I look forward to it. And y'all, peace be with y'all, brother. Peace, brothers. All right, peace. Well, there you have it. State Representative Brandon Ellington out of Missouri, District 022. And uh, you've heard his thoughts here today on slavery and human trafficking and the institutional uh, situations that we find ourselves having to address everything from the penitentiaries to even the media. You know, um, Max, um, I really appreciate his comments because he said something that I have been saying to people in the counter-racist community uh, who follow the work of Neely Fuller Jr. And Neely Fuller Jr. identified nine areas of people activity. And those nine areas are, number one, economics, number two, education, number three, entertainment, number four, labor, number five, law, number six, politics, number seven, religion, number eight, sex, and number nine, war. Every single activity, every single one of those activities are controlled by number six, 
politics, regulation, pro prohibition, abolition. It's all got to be done through the people activity area of politics. And I know, and and I and I love my brothers and sisters out there who who say that voting is a waste of time. And certainly, we have seen elections stolen and what have you uh, for forty years. Okay, uh, since the passage of the Voter Rights Act, it just seemed like we can't get it right. Okay. Um, Malcolm X also talked about political maturity. Well, just because as a group we haven't been doing it right is no reason to abandon it. And I just happen to believe, especially in the state of North Carolina, where the Supreme Court said the Republicans targeted black people with surgical precision with the law to keep us from voting, I have to say I hardly think they will waste any kind of time or spend that kind of money defending those laws if voting didn't matter in this state. They would they would just let everybody do it. But they not. They trying to take the right away. And so again, we can argue all day about the merits of, of voting and what have you, but voting as I think Mr. Ellington, Representative Ellington put it out that, you know, that you just don't vote. You just don't vote and you don't know what you're voting for. And like Johanan and, and, and Max pointed out, both pointed out, we see we're not taking the long view. We should be raising up our own political leaders from among our own children. And if, if they turn out to be sellouts, then we cover we just cut them off. All right, we we what's the word? We we ostracize them from the community. But I am glad that um, you got Doctor, uh, excuse me, you got James Kleeman and Baba Almafika who is working on that with the one million conscious black voters and contributors whose conference will be in Atlanta, Georgia on October the 21st. You can find out more information by going to I am one of the million dot com i am one of the million dot com so I, I i just wanted to put that out there i'm i'm 100 in agreement with what he said now again for those that that don't see the merits of that or or okay don't do that don't go against your own conscience do what your conscience says to do do what works for you but what you should not do is try to undermine other people's efforts works like he said stay in your lane talk about what you're doing and the merits of what you're doing and how it can help us but don't tear down other people's areas just cause you don't see the value in what they're doing I hear that, Scotty. Um, I, you know, I wanted to take a few minutes and cover some of the other events and, and things that occurred over the uh, period that we were there in Missouri. Um, the, of course, highlight was uh, Representative Ellington coming out and speaking on modern-day slavery and human trafficking, and then following up by coming here with us on New Abolitionist Radio today at blacktalkradionetwork.com to further uh, discuss where his ideas come from and uh, what he sees in today's issues. Um, Max, know, should we take? Let's go ahead and take the last break early and get it out the way, so uh, we can continue. And I, I 
Hey, I'm very impressed with our abolitionists. Second week in a row, I'm very impressed. I'm always impressed with abolitionists because they risked their lives, especially abolitionists pre-1865. We're in post-1865 now. But um, Mr. Smith, man, he's a very impressive individual. So I'm looking forward to the people hearing about him. Indeed. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com with Max Parthus, Scotty Reed, and Johanna Nalaya. We'll be right back after these messages. The Black Talk Media Project funds the use of new media technology in efforts to restore independent black voices to the myriad of issues affecting Afro-descendant people all over the planet. If media can control the minds of the masses, as Malcolm X once said, then you must ask yourself, who is in control of the media targeting the masses of black people today? Help bring back independence, self-determination, and respect for black culture in the production of global media by joining the effort to crowdfund new black media for the new millennium. Visit blacktalkmediaproject.org for more information on how you can invest in public black radio for the masses. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, we will continue some of our discussions on the things that we, uh, well, the tribal and I and Johanan experienced during our Missouri tour uh, event there, the 13th annual statewide human rights conference where I was the keynote speaker. Johanan gave a workshop on uh, wrongful incarcerations and tribal reign did a poem by the name of This City is Full of Mourning Mothers, very poignant and powerful poem. Uh, one of the things that was also a highlight for me was speaking to Brianna Dobbs out there, or just speaking to Brianna out there from the IWW uh, Incarcerated Workers Union, who are leading or among those spearheading the movement here to uh, unionize the prison laborers across America and also the prison work strike. We had some very powerful conversations, and at the end of it, she asked me, well, Max, what kind of suggestions would you make? And one of my suggestions was they should organize uh, their legal teams to start addressing the individual states that have these various uh, these variations on the 13th Amendment exception clause. Like Vermont, for instance, and Georgia, for instance. You've heard us talk about these states here on the uh, program before. And even in North Carolina, where Scotty's Constitution states that slavery is abolished, but involuntary servitude uh, can be applied. Johanna, what was one of the things that you wanted to mention or a highlight of the program while we were down there? Oh, man, I mean, obviously uh, meeting you and Tribal in the flesh, you know, definitely uh, gave me the gave me the golden glow, you know, just like I got the touch. The abolitionists came through. So, you know, we've been blessed to to have been consistent and, and uh, been able to, to work together over several years, yourself, Scotty, and me, you all bringing me in after this was up and going already. Um, but it's just something about, you know, like when I saw you going through North Carolina and hooked up with Scotty earlier this year, it was in my heart like, man, I got to get uh, I got to get on the road and get out and see my brothers, you know, in the trenches and, and really make that connection. So then, you know, we feel like the universe, the good Lord, however you want to see it, you know, made a way for us to, to do that, you know, and I, it was right here in my hometown. Another good thing um, was getting to uh, uh, finally hook up with uh, 
Elder Lorenzo and uh, and our sister Jonina. Um, I've spoken with them uh, several times since they came to Kansas City and tried to hook up with them last year on an event that they had going on, but it just it just didn't come together at the last minute for me. But um, that was good as well. And then to have my son with me and meet these you know legendary people in the struggle, man, and see like your dad's not just crazy, just you know out here just speaking into the headset every week and see me all the hours online and researching and going through all this and the year after year of seeing all of this, you know, he asks questions about what we do on, on the radio and what we do with, you know, abolitionism, but to see these elders and these great leaders in the field in our town and then see the effect it was having on the people, you know, as they were there and able to get answers and just see how we were coming together. I mean, it, I'm hoping it was life changing for him, and I know it was definitely life affirming for me. So all the times I've been on the ledge, and you told me keep fighting, you know, get off the ledge, man, get out, get back off the bridge, and, and come on back and, and keep going. Hey, I feel I feel rejuvenated. Word, brother. You know, I never feel like I'm uh, enough. I never feel like that, to be honest with you. But I, I know that I'm what we got, so I go out and do whatever I can whether it's enough or not is up for people to decide, you know, and I think that we made a lasting impact with the organizations and the people that were in attendance there, particularly uh, one of the things that would affirm that is the award we received on behalf of myself and you guys here at new abolitionist radio from Missouri cure, which is, was something uh, just really touched my heart. I've been involved in activism as long as I've been involved in art. And I received all kinds of awards for spoken word and poetry, but this is the first time I've ever been awarded with something for my activism. So that touched me there personally. And I was proud to accept this award on behalf of both you and Black Talk Radio Network and New Abolitionist Radio. So that was another thing. Hey, was, hey uh, and it's special to me because that's the first award connected to anything that Black Talk Media Project has been involved with, which, you know, for people that don't know, Black Talk Media Project is the North Carolina-based nonprofit that I founded in 2008 after I saw Malcolm X talk about the power of media and how it controls the minds of the masses. And so after all eight years, that's the... And, and you know, not that I'm ever looking for pats on the back or anything like that. You know, I do what I do because it needs to be done and somebody's got to do it, all right? But it, it, but it is, you know, nice to be recognized and I get emails from our listeners. Listeners call in and they express the appreciation for what we do here on the network. So, you know, that feels good as well. Just, you know, it helps bolster our morale because it gets depressing reporting all this doggone bad news and digging through this stuff and trying to figure a way out of no way and bouncing ideals off of each other and strategies and and what have you so yeah that that award it, it, i'm gonna print it out uh, print out the picture and i'm gonna put it in the frame max <laughs> Word, brother. I'll take you a nice clear one, and and uh, I'll bring it bring it to you. Maybe put it on your table for a change. You know, um, the other things that I, I wanted uh, to remember is that some of the people that we met and some of the serendipity that went on. For instance, I met a gentleman there who served in Vietnam with the man who founded CEC, which is the uh, 
the uh, Community Education Center. At one point, it was the third largest private prison in the country. And after 40 years, this man contacted the person that he had served with who was there with us at the Missouri Cure Conference and wanted to pour his heart out to him. And he told me all of these things that this man had said. And the man died a year later. The founder by the name of Clancy of CEC died a year later. So apparently, you know, it was deathbed confessions. And he was telling me about how working with Chris Christie, the a government there in New Jersey kind of took over what he was doing to help children by building halfway houses and turned it into a profitable venture that they could all uh, exploit. And as we know, what came from that, they have facilities all the way out here in South Carolina now. And the governor, who was a former lobbyist, Chris Christie, for the uh, private prison company, CEC in particular, used uh, eminent domain laws to put these facilities all across New Jersey where they're charging upward of over $200,000 a year to incarcerate children in those private facilities. So that was uh, amazing that uh, he would happen to be there to tell me his story. And then I met another gentleman who had been uh, served, who had served 22 years in prison, and they finally let him out. Uh, on, of course, some conditions with what we call collateral consequences, and he's on probation for years now. And they won't let him off probation. They keep telling him to jump through all these hoops. The brother built his own business, generated eighty thousand dollars in a single year, employed several people in the community, and he went back and said, "Can I get off now? Do I, can I stop paying you guys? Because he's paying them." Can I stop paying you guys to do this? They told him that he has to do something impressive. Imagine that. <laughs> and then I, I'd like to give a personal shout-out to Maureen. Uh, Maureen Flint, who uh, sponsored our stay there, uh, gave us a place to stay there. And while we was there, she sponsored us to have one more day. And because of that one more day, I got to have dinner with the representative and, and speak with him further. I also went down to a community event where he was at and where the local media was at. And I got to talk to people at KUAW uh, Radio. It's a black radio station, much like blacktalkradionetwork.com. And they will be contacting you, maybe on uh, doing some collaborations there, Scotty Reed. And we got a video that went all across Missouri about the 13th Amendment and about the prison work strike. So that was amazing. I got to talk to the people there. And I met a brother there who was a bishop. And he's a bishop of the International Progressive Ministries. And he says that on the 13th and 14th of October, they're having representatives come from churches from all of America. Uh, 30 different states are gathering for a conference. And he wants me to come and address this entire conference of churches from all over America. I am looking forward to that, Scott. You know how long we've been fighting for that right there, right? Yes, to sir. get the churches behind us? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I mean, they should they should be the ones leading this when we look at the historical role of the church in abolitionism. Right. And he sat down and broke bread with us all that night when we had that long conversation and we went over the things that are really going on in this country. And everybody was of one accord. And that's where we can be of one accord. There has only really been this one unifier throughout the history of the United States of America, and that's whether or not we wanted slavery. And we're right back at that same point again. That's the one that divides us right down the middle because we can see what's happening in the United States now. Half of the people across the country completely agree with what's going on and half don't. So uh, we're narrowing it down to slavery. So those are some of the highlights for me, brother. And got, getting to walk in the footsteps of some of the abolitionists out in Kansas, as well as visiting the uh, Wyandotte Cemetery out there and uh, paying homage to our ancestors there as well. Those were all highlights for me. And I visited the statue of, Jane, of John Brown, the uh, abolitionist John Brown. That was pretty awesome. 
So more will be coming from this, undoubtedly. Uh, much more is going to come from this. We'll be working with IWW, we'll be working with the representative, and we will be working with Missouri Cure. Shout out to Keith L., Keith Brown L., and Sister uh, Harden as well, who make that happen. We'll be working with them in the future to make more things occur until we finally get rid of slavery in the United States of America. And that's going to start with you, you changing your mind, you the listener, deciding that, no, this is not some mistake. This is on purpose, and it's called slavery. Gentlemen? Something you something you mentioned, Max, there toward the end about just being able to come together with folks and be on one accord, uh, it goes back also to what uh, Representative Ellington was talking about with one of the reasons why we as a people continue to lose politically and of course you know like Scotty mentioned with Neely Fuller's teachings not only when you lose politically you're going to lose in all these other areas as well is that unity and that takes me to what is going on with the prison strike all over the country right now the third week of the prison strike that is something that is amazing to me and I feel like is a, a bellwether is a is a is a harbinger of what is going to come in this country as far as us getting together and being united on a common cause. You've got across the nation, in prisons, state level, federal level, private prisons, uh, across the nation in several states, people that cannot see each other or cannot physically reach out to one, each other, uh, one another, cannot call each other, cannot correspond through social media. They have no way of really contacting each other that's a reliable and sustainable method. But they've used whatever methods that they have to continue to coordinate for all of this year. We've been reporting on this all of the year, basically. We've been getting the update. It is coming. And when the, the anniversary of the Attica uprising comes, they're going to honor that by doing their own uprising and stand down from the labor that they're being forced to, to participate in. And to be able to do that across the country thousands of men and women and even juveniles whoever is participating this this underage this locked up as well this is affecting the markets and this is how they're going to affect change but i want people to think about these people can't reach out to each other we have facebook we have instagram and whatever twitter and all these social media channels we see each other in church we work with each other we go back and forth doing whatever we do and we can't come together even on slavery we can't come together even even on one thing to do as much as these people are doing. It's it's amazing to me. So salute to them and salute to unity overall. Salute to that unity indeed, brother. <clears throat> this is the great unifier. You have to make a decision. You're either for it or you're against it. There is no middle ground. Your inaction is an action, as the representative was mentioning in Scotty Reed about even voting. Inaction is an action. So you have to use what your talents and skills are. And we can attack this from every angle because slavery affects every aspect of our society, every aspect. And there's somewhere that you can fit in to make a change, whatever your talents may be. And even if it's not a change, there's some healing that you can do, like prison ministries and uh, advocates and the Innocence Project. All these things are available for you to participate in. As Scotty has mentioned on more than one occasion, it's a damn shame. When you hear people talk about what they would have done had they been alive during the times of Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, and when the opportunity uh, presents itself as it does now, they have nothing to say and nothing to do. I'm very proud that a lot of artists and mainstream people are starting to come out and say, you know what, I'm not going to be silent anymore. 
but we want you to come in agreement on something that you're not going to be silent about in particular, and that's slavery and human trafficking. It really is the root of our issues. So, gentlemen, here's uh, we have a, a question that comes before us at this point in our programming tonight. We've got a little bit less than 15 minutes, maybe 13 minutes or so, and two segments left to do. Do you want to open the phones and skip those segments and just put them on New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook for people to be able to see them, and we'll mention them, who they are, our abolitionists in profile, and our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad? I'm sorry. I I'm, I'm totally did not understand the question, but I think we do have time for those. I know I recorded the um, abolitionist profiles only four minutes long. Okay, all right. So I guess we'll, we'll be able to squeeze both of them in. Uh, I just wanted to see if there was anybody on the line that wanted to Oh, no, sir. No, sir. Into- no, sir. Nobody. Sure. I mean, there are people on the line, but none that want to make a comment or ask right. a question. If, if you want to make a comment or ask a question, just press star six and one to keep yourself up from the conference line. I guess in the meantime, then we'll move on to our uh, our regular scheduled segments. Let me just before you here. do that, Max. Let me just say I'm sorry I can't find the email again because I'm over here uh, multitasking trying to catch up on um, these emails and what have you. But I came across an email that was directed at New Abolitionist Radio. I'm sorry I can't find the email. I just replied to the person. Now I'm trying to find it again and I can't find it. But the person sent a link to the New York Daily News article, I think was written by, what's that guy named, the black guy? Sean? Sean King. What, say that again. Sean King? Yes, Sean King. I, was he the one who recently wrote an article about the uh, slavery never being abolished in the 13th Amendment loophole? Indeed, Sean King is the brother I've been lobbying now for over a year. Yeah, and I and, and I told, I think I told, I replied with that to the listener, um, but the listener just sent me an email and said, "This is how you know that," and I'm paraphrasing what he said that y'all are having an impact because y'all have been putting out this information for so long, and you know that all of this is a result of the work that we've been doing. Well, I I can't say that definitively but i do know i'm starting to see the correct language describing what it is not the politically correct term of mass incarceration but i'm starting to see more and more not just people but even publications starting to point out what we've been trying to point out for four years since we've been on air since 2012 and what many abolitionists preceding us have been doing. Shout out to Angela Davis. You mentioned her. Shout out to Mr. Lee Wood. Shout out to um, uh, the co-author of his book, Prison Slavery, that came out in 1971. Shout out to the Black Panther Party because they were abolitionists too. And and so, yeah. And so, again, that's why I wanted to share that on air because, you know, Max, there are people out there recognizing what we do. It's important. You know, I have this I have a belief that there is no time and no point in human history where the actions of one single person was not enough to change everything forever. I I believe that. So what you do and what Johanna does and what our listeners do can change everything. The potential is always there. Well, I guess I'll go into our writer of the 21st century underground railroad then for our next segment. Um, Every week, we 
recognize someone who has gained freedom one way or another, whether it be uh, like Brother Darrell Paget, who got himself out after uh, 20 years in prison, or the Innocence Project, who uh, continually frees people. But this one comes from the Center on Wrongful Convictions, and it's from Northwestern Pritzker. And our abolitionist, or our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad this week is Carl Lawson, courtesy of Travel Rain, who found him for me. A shoddy police investigation landed Carl Lawson on death row. After eight years, Terrence Jones was found murdered in, uh, after eight-year-old Terrence Jones was found mur murdered in his East St. Louis home on July 27, 1989, a friend of his mother, Carl E. Lawson, was charged with the crime because bloody shoe prints consistent with the shoes he owned were found at the scene. At the trial, the state contended the print had been left by the killer. But Lawson claimed that if the prints indeed were his, he had left them when he arrived at the church after the child's body was discovered, which was several hours after the murder occurred. Unfortunately, Lawson, who was represented by a trial by a former prosecutor who had handled his arraignment, did not have funds to hire an independent expert to examine the print. He was convicted by a St. Clair County jury and sentenced to death, but he won a new trial based on his lawyer's conflict of interest and the trial judge's denial of resources to hire forensic experts. By this time, an alternative suspect had been identified and the prosecution's shoe print theory was called into question. Still, prosecutors tried Lawson two more times. At the first, the jury deadlocked, with 11 of its 12 members favoring acquittal. At the second, a year later, Lawson was found not guilty. The alternative suspect has since died without ever being investigated. Lawson's exoneration was unusual because the error was corrected without the help of volunteers outside the system. After his release, Lawson moved to Missouri, where he had, has had a difficult time finding steady employment. It's hard, he says. Not very many people want to hire a man who's been on death row. We here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you, Carl Lawson, and we welcome you to Freedom, brother. Freedom. Nothing like it. Freedom ain't easy. Well, there is our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad for this week. Our next segment is going to be our abolitionists in profile, where we recognize those who came before us. We study their ways and their actions, what they did right, what they did wrong. So we, as abolitionists today, have uh, someone to mentor us and how we should move forward on this movement. And our abolitionist in profile today is James McCoon Smith, April 18th to 1813 to November 17th. 1865. And after you read it, Scotty, I will uh, point out something about that particular date. James McCune Smith, 1813 to 1865, was an American physician, apothecary, abolitionist, and author. He is the first African American to hold a medical degree and graduated at the top of his class at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. He was the first African American to run a pharmacy in the United States. He has been most well known for his leadership as an abolitionist, a member of the American Anti-Slavery Society, along with Frederick Douglass, he helped start the National Council of Colored People in 1853. 
the first permanent national organization for blacks. While in Scotland, Smith joined the Glasgow Emancipation Society and met people in the Scottish and English abolitionist movement. In 1833, Great Britain abolished slavery. When Smith returned to New York, he quickly joined the American Anti-Slavery Society and worked for the cause in the United States. He worked effectively with both black and white abolitionists. For instance, maintaining a friendship and correspondence with Garrett Smith that spanned the years from 1846 to 1865. Publishing articles quickly brought him to the attention of the National Abolitionist Movement. His Destiny of the People of Color, Freedom and Slavery for Africans, and a lecture on the Haitian Revolution established him as a new force in the field. He also directed the Colored People's Educational Movement in 1850. As a member of the Committee of 13, Smith was one of the key organizers of resistance in New York City to the newly passed Fugitive Slave Act, which required states to aid federal law enforcement in capturing escaped victims of slavery. As did similar groups in Boston, his committee aided victims of slavery in escaping capture and helped connect them to people in the Underground Railroad and other escape routes. During the mid-1850s, Smith worked with Frederick Douglass to establish the National Council of Colored People, one of the first permanent black national organizations, beginning with a three-day convention in Rochester, New York. At the convention in Rochester, he and Frederick Douglass emphasized the importance of education for their race and urged the founding of more schools for black youth. Smith wanted choices available for both industrial and classical education. Douglas valued his rational approach and said that Smith was the single most important influence on his life. Smith tempered the more radical people in the abolitionist movement and insisted on arguing from facts and analysis. He wrote a regular column in Douglas's paper published under the pseudonym Communipaw. Opposing the immigration of American free blacks to other countries, Smith believed that native-born Americans had the right to live in the United States and a claim by their labor and birth to their land. He gathered supporters to go to Albany and testify to the state legislature against proposed plans to support the American Colonization Society, which has supported sending free blacks to the colony of Liberia in Africa. Smith contributed money to revive the weekly Anglo-African in 1861 as an anti-immigrationist newspaper. His own writings were important for refuting commonly held racist assumptions of the time. New Abolitionist Radio salutes abolitionist James McCune Smith. Salute, Brother Smith. Salute. Salute, man. All these. See, man, media is very important. How many of these abolitionist stories have we told and they were connected to media somehow? Poets, uh, writers, authors, I mean, it, it, newspaper, pamphlet, people putting out pamphlets, newsletters. Media is very important to the abolitionist movement. Yes, indeed. Uh, public opinion is what's going to sway this all. That's how we reach critical mass 
And when we say public opinion, we don't mean, you know, who feels good or bad, but who understands, simply has the truth in their hand and is able to, and able to function with that truth. Because if you don't even know what the problem is, how the hell can you address it? Max, so um, I know we're coming up on our last true. comments. I'm sorry, but we do got a call. And I, if I had to yield my time, but we do got Lotus Place coming up at 10 o'clock. Uh, if we go a couple of uh, minutes over, I'm sh- I'm sure she won't mind, but I don't want to go over that much. But I do want to take All this right, call. Let's, uh, let's take Eric, this call. Area code seven eight six. Uh, please be quick, um, because we're just about out of time. But go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, <clears throat> my name is Sharif Ali. I just uh, want to thank you all for putting on the broadcast for every man standing up and uh, being accounted for knowing that there will a legacy. Uh, forever be recorded and you all are doing what those ancestors have done which is stood up and chose to be counted outside of criticism and naysayers so shout out to you all for doing what you do I was referred mm-hmm. to listening to uh, Tando Radio by by uh, Brother David and um, me and him have a good connection and I, I, I like the uh, I love BPR and what you all stand for and I'm thankful that you know we have people once again that are willing to invest in themselves because we are ourselves we're all family members if we look at it like that. So I appreciate brothers like you all doing what you're doing. I look forward to joining you all uh, on this journey and doing what we need to do to restore some type of order back to our community. So thank you all, brothers. Thank and you. Sisters, thank water's you. on the platform right now. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that very much. Uh, we love to hear that every now and then. As Scotty said, it can be heartbreaking and wearisome sometimes. And just to know that we're making an impact directly from uh, the people themselves really boost us up to move forward. Well, Brother Scotty Reed, any final comments? Um, I don't really have any final comments, but I am just was so grateful to have talking to um, the uh, Representative Ellington out of Missouri and to know that a person like him exists within that realm just, just really gives me hope for the future man I got a lot of hope man and like I've been saying all week on my other radio program is that man these young people these young people y'all are really inspiring me with your spirit your spirit your fighting spirit and unwillingness to compromise so young people y'all are an inspire uh, inspiration to this middle aged man word brother Johannes Uh, Johannan, you must got yourself muted, bro. Okay. I think we, we might have him have muted. I, I think I can speak for him when he says, uh, peace to the abolitionists, death to the oppressors. And for me, I would like to just point out something. Today, three more people died at the hands of police. 13,000 went to jail today. 95% of the people who go to prison from jail will stand before a prosecutorial pool, which is 95% white. Most people standing before them will be people of color. 79% of those prosecutors are white men. 95% will not receive a trial as guaranteed by the sixth amendment. Instead, they will get a plea bargain and be sent right to prison. I just want you to know that if you're looking for a revolution, 
Abolition is a reason for a revolution. So we can finally know some peace. Peace. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo form.